My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Now, as regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and current affairs. And to this end, I'm delighted to welcome Lawrence Ainsworth, multi-award winning author and a high growth coach onto today's programme. Uh, Lawrence, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Glad to be there. My pleasure. How welcome you on as well, Lawrence. And uh, just for those listeners that might not be familiar with him, um, through his business, Managing High Growth, uh, Lawrence assists uh, some of the fastest growing businesses in the UK in helping them to meet the challenges associating with growing quickly. And he's a regular speaker on uh, high growth issues um, around businesses and some of the challenges that they face as well. Um, so before we go into sort of detail about all of that and, you know, what business leaders need to be aware of as uh, their companies enter that uh, that growth phase, Lawrence, um, I'd be interested just to understand just a little bit more about yourself and uh, how it was that you sort of got into sort of the uh, the high growth coaching business did you always have a sense that it was going to be the way forward for you okay um so uh it um classically um no i i, I wasn't intending to be a high growth coach after my days of employment um but let me just go back to give you uh, kind of a, a bit of history mm. The main uh, when I when I reviewed my position in about 2010, what I looked at is okay, what skills have have I got that I can bring to bear? Um, and during uh, the 90s, I worked for a company called Admiral PLC, not the insurance company, uh, but an I, I, IT software company. Um, and during that period, we grew from. Uh, 12 million when I when I first joined, and a couple of hundred people to just under 200 million a decade later, and uh, we were employing something like 2,800 people. The vast majority of that was through organic growth, and typically we were growing at between 25 and 40 percent a year every year compound. So that that's what drove drove that, and really that kind of high growth, very strong growth-based environment um, gave me a lot of background in the the work that you need to sustain that. Um, and really what I discovered in looking at high-growth companies was that there was a lot of focus on sales. Um, and obviously you need you need to sell. Let's, let's not underestimate it. It is a necessary condition. But in order to be successful in, in growing, you need to be able to deliver what you've sold and you need to maintain the quality of what you're delivering uh, or, or what you've sold to keep your customers happy. And actually, that's, um, that's really the, the difficult bit because it involves lots of different parts of the business working effectively together. It does, absolutely right. And a key element of that, I suppose, is also mobilising the workforce within the uh, the business to be able to deliver that high growth because the culture that you implement in a business when it enters that uh, scale-up phase, let's say, is incredibly important. And sometimes I think it's it's sort of understated how important it is because where businesses enter the uh, the growth phase and they maybe tend to uh, to fail and maybe sort of grow quicker than they're able to uh, to cope with, often it is down to sort of culture issues isn't it and how basically your processes and people are managed within the business yeah absolutely if you look at successful companies that sustain growth one of one of the common uh, factors which you, which you which i agree is often ignored is the culture of the business so if you have a, a, a strong clearly defined culture then you're much more likely to be successful than one where it's 
example, where typically it's left to grow and develop itself because that very rarely delivers the right sort of environment that you need. Um, and by choosing a strong culture, what that means is that you can effectively with your recruitment only choose those people who are committed to the cultural values that you've got. And therefore, as you increase that, uh, what that means is that everybody's working together, they're more productive, um, they feel they share the same sense of purpose, and you deliver a lot more as an organization rather than just taking on people because they've got a good set of skills. Um, and most business, I would say, completely ignore the power of that kind of cultural infrastructure. And do you think an imperative part of that cultural infrastructure is showing that you're sort of prioritising the sort of mental health and the well-being of the people that work for you and also that you're sort of making sort of more taking rather active steps to, you know, keep morale high and make sure that they are sort of focused and have that psychological safety that's necessary to get the best out of them? Yes, I, I, think, I think it is. I mean, one of the more interesting and perhaps less things that I've discovered looking at cultures is that if you have a strong culture, you will be more, you will perform better than a business that doesn't have a strong culture. But what, it, but what, what is slightly less clear is how much um, that you can have a, if you like, a very aggressive and unpleasant culture and still be much more effective than a company that doesn't have any culture. Mm. Um, having said that, if you look at those businesses that are truly successful, then what they do is they look at the employee and they put it at the heart of the business and, and that enables the company to grow. And that includes looking at people's work welfare, having expectations about performance, obviously having that kind of openness to allow people to say, I'm struggling, it's not working, and be non-judgmental because often that's the trouble, isn't it? That when people feel they're not quite making it or they've, they've got an issue, they're worried that they'll be judged and written off and therefore from a career point of view, um, effectively negated. So, uh, you know, that having that openness and the ability for people to say, okay, I need to take some time out and not for it to be seen as a, not for them to feel that they'll be sanctioned in any way is really critical to, to, to getting people's buying and performance. And I think actually one of the interesting shifts with the, with the pandemic is now that companies have to realize that that's what they've got to do more, that actually people are far more important and they have to recognize their needs to a greater level than they had, had done pre, pre the pandemic. That's exactly right. I think we've become far more acutely aware of the importance of all of this, haven't we? And um, I suppose even before the uh, the pandemic, I know, of course, um, our sort of awareness of this has really heightened since then. But has it always been clear that there's been a correlation between sort of, you know, strong employee engagement, a happy, satisfied and fulfilled workforce and greater productivity? Yes, absolutely. Wherever you look, uh, I mean, people tended to ignore the statistics. But wherever you look, people were much more, businesses were much more effective. And typically, you know, even going back to historic data, if you had a strong uh, and effective culture, typically you would be, um, you would be 20% more profitable than those companies that weren't. Uh, you typically have lower attrition, so your recruitment costs were, were less. You'd have more productive employees, which means that they would deliver more per individual and they'd be happy doing it. Um, and I've seen seen both sides where, you know, typically you'll get a, 
a, a disengaged workforce and, um, you know, somebody comes in at half past eight, reads the Daily Mirror until nine o'clock, starts working at nine o'clock, you know, often their, their threshold is how much do I have to do not to get disciplined or effectively, you know, uh, you know, noticed. Um, so what's the minimum level I can do to get over that threshold rather than what's the maximum I can do to add value to the business? Yeah, it's... Uh... And certainly in Admiral, the latter, we were much, much more effective um, and, and productive simply because people would put in that maximum effort rather than work off a minimum baseline. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's motivating people to do that bit more. Not necessarily that you have to work within a set eight hours, but more, um, and you have that that eight hours to complete a certain task, for instance. But it's about kind of, can you actually complete that task in less than eight hours? And then what more can you do in that eight hours? And empowering your workforce to be able to do more, isn't it? And I think a lot of that um, has to start from the top, from the leadership point of view, doesn't it? Because I suppose if you're sort of setting a certain expectation, Ultimately, that's what your employees are going to uh, to live up to, isn't it? So your role in that is incredibly important. Absolutely, you know the the, the thing, the, the most important thing about a culture is you have to absolute you as a leader absolutely have to live it and embody it. You cannot be outside it. I mean, I always get extraordinarily cross when I listen to stuff in um, certainly uh, more recently in Parliament and some of the the, the select committees where there's assumption that there's you and then there's culture sat in the corner, you know, and then, and then there's the rest of the workforce in the sense that, you know, culture is something that's different when in fact culture is simply the embodiment of a set of principles that you decide that you need. Um, and if you haven't got those, um, if you haven't got those principles and you don't live by them, then your workforce simply won't follow them because they'll think, well, if you're not doing it, why should I do it? Um, and that's and and it's really about living those principles. I mean, the most outstanding example of this is, uh, um, and if people want to read it, is a chap called Tony Shea, spelled T H E I H, uh, and he uh, wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. Um, and his company was Zappos, uh, and they were the fastest growing company. Um, for, to go from zero to a billion pounds. And one of the things that they, they said was, get your culture right and everything else will follow. And they, they are real evangelicals about how culture transforms your business. And understandably so as well, given that exponential growth that they, uh, that they were able to enjoy. And um, obviously we talked about the need for business leaders to you know, really embody the, uh, the, the culture, let's say. Um, and everything else, of course, comes after that. But I suppose it also works as well for some of the negative aspects. And this might be things that maybe business leaders don't necessarily realise that they're doing. So, for instance, if you're seen to be burning yourself out and answering emails at, say, 11 or half 11 at night are you almost implicitly putting that expectation upon your workforce as well without realising that you're doing it? And then that almost leads to sort of toxicity because sometimes when you sort of come into a business that needs a little bit of a culture overhaul, it isn't necessarily down to things that they've sort of intentionally and mindfully done to, you know, almost kind of make the uh, the workforce disincentivized or sort of completely disillusioned with the whole thing. It's things that they've either done without realising or maybe some things that they've not done as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the most important thing to think of is that when when people are looking at a reference point about behaviours, attitudes, and whether you follow through on things, is 
they automatically look up. So in other words, they will look to their bosses and their bosses will look to their bosses and so on up to the top and say, so, you know, if Lawrence is running the company, what does Lawrence do? So if Lawrence comes in at seven o'clock in the morning and he's sending everything out by emails and he's not going home till 11 o'clock at night and then all the people who work for him will feel that they failed if they don't stay uh, at least as long. And you can see that um, particularly in the Japanese attitude to work, which is that you never leave the office before your boss. Uh, and the problem with that is that often the boss don't, doesn't go home till nine o'clock, which means you don't go home. But but what 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 that fails to understand is that if you're working these long hours under stress, then actually your overall performance will deteriorate. And I think there was a classic um, um, example of that when Microsoft did a um, uh, a study or, or a research study in Japan, and they allowed their staff to work only four days a week instead of five. Um, and whilst the amount of work, whilst the working hours fell by 80%, productivity went, uh, sorry, 20%, productivity went up by over 40%, simply because they allowed them the chance to recharge, come back in at the right time, and not continually be working. And I think it's important to understand, and, and I think it's a, to some extent a British disease that we believe that more hours equals more work when actually it doesn't because all that's happening is that you're working slower across more hours. You're not delivering more. And I think, you know, that's something that we've got to recognize that it's not, well, you've got to come into the office and you've got to, if you work longer, you'll deliver more because that's not the case. Yeah, exactly right. And I think almost the extension to that as well is kind of taking the lead on how you as a leader deal with, you know, the times when you're sort of feeling stressed and burnt out as well. If uh, if your employees see you taking that step back as and when you need to and taking a lead on well-being, I suppose that sort of helps enhance that psychological safety, doesn't it? They feel that they're able to speak out if you're, you know, showing your own vulnerabilities. Absolutely. So the point that I think the most important thing about culture is that if you sit at the top, then you are the embodiment of the culture. So everybody will look at your actions, your attitudes, your behaviors in certain situations and determine how they should respond in a similar situation simply based on how you respond. So if you get angry with somebody because he hasn't delivered, then they'll think that's the right thing to do. So they'll get angry. Now, you know, I, I realize that's a slightly trite example, but that's, that's just how it works. Because obviously within an organization, if you if you are if you're ambitious and you want to develop and you want to go up, you know, you want to move through the organization to get in a more senior position, then the last thing you do is do things differently from the leader of the organization because automatically you'll be you you know, you'll be identified as not the right person to to, to take a senior job. So it you know, that's what drives it. It is exactly. So um yeah, yeah, and um, something as well that's come up on a, uh, a previous episode of the uh, the podcast as well that I do want to talk about is something that somebody put to me when it comes to businesses entering the uh, the high growth scale up phase and then having to need to bring more people on board. And I suppose the importance for business leaders in this context is to make sure that if you're bringing in sort of new managers and sort of new leaders, new staff, they've got to obviously buy into the culture and the way that you do things haven't they because when we hear about sort of quiet quitting for instance it's quite often that people don't necessarily always leave businesses but they leave managers and if you bring in somebody that doesn't quite match up with the culture and doesn't quite match up with the way that you want to do things that can be a major sticking point can't it and would you say therefore that that is something that 
you do have to be aware of when you're sort of looking to grow a business? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's always it's always a risk, um, and one of the things I try and encourage my uh, my clients to do, and I uh, and I talk a lot about when uh, you know when I'm when I'm speaking is is how people are recruited, and what and, and I always say the most important thing is fit first, then skill set. Typically, what you do is if you have a job as a project manager, you'll get a whole bunch of people coming in. You'll say, right, this guy's got the right skills. He's a great project manager and whatever. That's great. But fundamentally, what that means is that you don't discover what his values are until he's, he's in the door. And that can be very dangerous, particularly if you're trying to grow. So the important thing to do is to screen feature people for their cultural values first. And those that best match your, miss, miss, um, match your cultural values, those are the ones that you then pick from. Because it's much easier to develop people than it is to change their attitudes. In fact, it's almost impossible to change people's attitudes or is extraordinarily hard. Um, you, know, uh, you know, and I see this in many times. And I always use the example to say, if you are a person and you have somebody that you like, um, or indeed a political party, and you, you, you prefer a political party, you cannot the next day change your affiliation. It just doesn't happen because your attitudes are, they fit what I want. And, and so changing people's attitudes is the most difficult thing to do. So the best thing to do is not to have to do that, but to, fight, but to weed out those people who don't have the right values to you. The other thing is if you do have a strong culture, then it acts as a, um, if you like, it, it it, it, it acts as a protective cushion. So if somebody comes in and doesn't fit, then the peer pressure around them will force them to leave the company earlier. It's a bit like an inoculation process. Um, and effectively, what you're doing is you're seeing a, a, a rogue gene. And effectively, what you do is um, the peer pressure will encourage people to leave. So those people will be moved out. But there's only a certain rate of growth that will enable you to continue that. If you recruit too many people, then your existing cultural protection won't be strong enough if it's inundated with people who are, for want of a better term, countercultural. I completely understand why you're coming from there. And um, do you think, therefore, when it comes to sort of recruiting, certainly in the managerial areas, do you think it's important as a leader when you're sort of, say, managing a startup business and then looking to enter the um, sort of the growth phase, the scale up? Do you think it's important, therefore, to invest in the personal development of the people that are on board with you at the start? And therefore, they're probably in a better position to, you know, go up the ladder. You're able to recruit your sort of managerial and positions of responsibility from within and therefore the culture's reinforced and anybody else you're having to therefore bring into the business is going to be almost um, on the other sort of shop floor level. And then they're going to have to kind of like learn the culture from scratch, maybe. Um. Ideally, yes, but very often the problem when you're in the when you're in the growth phase is that simply you don't have the skill set within your organisation. Mm. I would absolutely agree with you that again, what we tend to do as people is we look at the people that we've got and we very easily write them off and go, well, no, he's never mm. going to do that. Therefore, I need to recruit somebody rather than saying, well, hang on, let me step back and see if I can get them closer to what I need them to do because it's always easier to have somebody who's you know, as you say, within your organization, therefore supporting your cultural values, it's always easier to grow, it's better to grow them, but it's not always possible. So certainly maximize that, but again, recognize that you will have to bring in, bring in people because obviously as you grow, the demands on the individual change. 
um, and the demands on the organization change. So when you're at the beginning of a, a growth phase, then you're quite, what's the word I would use? You're quite flexible. Um, you're a relatively small team, but as you scale, then you need to become more and more structured. And obviously that requires a different kind of person, a different kind of skill set. And that may not be available to you um, from your original team members. Yeah, food for thought, certainly for any entrepreneurs that may be tuning into this, um, that does run a business that may be entering that uh, that sort of scale up growth phase. And I think as well, it almost commands a change from the person at the top as well, isn't it? When you enter that period, because obviously you might be used to, as you say, that sort of flexible role where it might involve some sort of work on the, uh, you know, the bottom line, the uh, the shop floor, let's say. And you may find yourself having to move back into that more strategic role and handing the reins of the day to day running of the business over to others and I suppose that is a transition that some entrepreneurs do tend to uh, to struggle with psychologically yes they do um, you know I I think when you're when you're an entrepreneur and when you're in a startup you're almost a bit of a con- control freak because you have your finger in on absolutely everything and you decide everything that gets done and and effectively the lesser tasks then get handed down and people imp- implement it but as you get bigger it's just simply too much for one person to handle and you have to delegate down more and more to people. So you're, you have to be able to trust that if you want something done, that the, your, your, your leadership team or the next level down, if you're at that stage, will have the commitment to implement it in the way that you want. Um, and that's very hard because entrepreneurs are reluctant, often very reluctant to do that. And, and that's often the, the biggest stumbling block why the business won't grow because simply you have to be able to trust people enough to say I'll stand back and I'll do you know um, I'll do the more strategic work typically for example if you're trying to get external funding that's almost a full-time job in itself just because of the amount of things you have to do the people you need to see you know the networking you have to talk to whatever you know and it may take three to six months and you have to be sufficiently confident in the team around you that the business won't just fall apart because you're just looking at, at trying to raise more money. Yeah. Um, and that's especially true in the UK where we have a much less liquid kind of, you know, venture capital funding or seed growth or however you want to put it. You know, we're much less liquid than the States and we have a slightly different attitude. Um, you know, we're very much about bootstrapping organisations and self-funding up into a point and then getting seed funding. In the States, you borrow a load of money when you first start and then you work like hell to try and deliver against it. So it's a kind of a different, um, it's, it's, it's a different attitude and it's a different market. It certainly is, isn't it? And um, like I say, the importance of trust in all of that is so, so critical because as you are moving back and trying to, you know, go into securing external funding, looking at the strategy, you've got to be able to trust people to sort of make big decisions within the business without essentially having to sort of run everything through you. I mean, you are no longer the be all and end all. And I think uh, one of the marks of a good leader when you're thinking of entering the growth phase is you've got to basically be able to make yourself expendable, haven't you? Everything can't go through you. Yeah, absolutely. You need to be able to pick your pick your your, your skills uh, uh, and enable you to go right. Okay, I will put in reporting, or you know, I will put structures in place which allows me to get the necessary information from each function for me to be confident that they're delivering. But I can do that on a you know once a month basis, or I can do that on a you know half an hour a week basis, and that pretty much frees me up to do what I need to do. 
And obviously, I also need to learn that my job changes, that it's not doing the detail, it is doing the strategic, it is thinking about what happens um, if, you know, how do, I, how, do, how do we deal with these problems globally or how do, you know, what do I do with my supplies? How do I change my quality control? Things that are, you know, important and require time to think rather than time just to do. That's why you'll see in large companies, chief executives have empty desks. And the reason for that is their job is to think about what's going on and think about what to do, not just process bits of paper for the sake of argument. Exactly right. Everybody's got to essentially know their roles and also be able to uh, to go beyond it. I think that is absolutely right. And um, it's fantastic um, talking about this uh, this sort of topic because um, we are, of course, at the Leaders' Council, really passionate about empowering the next generation of entrepreneurs to build businesses that are able to grow and really unlock their true potential. And uh, for anybody listening in that may well be sort of a business leader exactly in that situation, um, if you do want to sort of talk, delve a little bit more into some of the other uh, topics we've discussed today. Um, Lawrence, as I mentioned at the start, is an award-winning author and published a book called Staying Ahead of the Hammer. And I certainly would recommend you go and have a look at that because that also sort of maps out that complex issue of actually not just finding high growth, but also being able to maintain it in a sustainable manner, doesn't it? So plenty to draw on in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Certainly would recommend everybody seek that out. Uh, Lawrence is also active on LinkedIn as well if you would like to uh, to contact him. Um, and if anybody as well is particularly, you know, impassioned by some of the issues that we have discussed today and you want to leave a comment with us or you want to ask a question, then you can do that as well. You can do so via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. That would be the port of call. And anything directed to Lawrence, of course, will uh, pass directly over to him. Um, before we do wrap up the uh, the show, Lawrence, before because I'm conscious that we're running short of time on the, today's programme, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of the future from your perspective and it is um, a very difficult economic climate out there um, at the moment but um, essentially that shouldn't hold back the entrepreneurial spirit of the country should it because we've seen as history has proved that a lot of successful businesses spring out of times of economic hardship and although the temptation as you've said already in the UK may well be to bootstrap an awful lot of the uh, of the time you know, maybe now is the time for business leaders to be looking beyond and capitalise on the uh, on the recovery period when it eventually comes around, because that's essentially when real growth can uh, can be achieved. Yeah, I mean, I I think people um, un, un, underestimate actually that that the very often you need <laughs> sounds terrible, really, but you need a, a recession, you need a clear out of underperforming businesses, underperforming resources. Um, to enable you to develop those new fledgling businesses. So if you do have a fledgling business and you've got a good idea, then the fact that, that we're, we're going to go into a recession shouldn't put you off. In fact, you should see it as, a, as, as an opportunity because people are much more ready to accept change. Um, when the economy is good, then, then people go, well, if it's good, why do I want to change it? Why do I want to do these new things? Um, when things aren't going so well, then people are much more open to, okay, this hasn't worked. I need to do something different. What is there out there? What products or services? What companies can I go to? Um, so it is, it, is, it is a good time because there will be a lot of opportunity out there. Um, there will be a lot of companies, particularly in this recession, I think, um, that will will fail and there will be resources freed up and there will be opportunities. If you go back to 2008, which was the last big recession, it was driven, uh, it was driven by the banks. 
the outfall of that was that the banks became very reluctant to put underperforming businesses into liquidation. So over the last 10 years, we've had a high proportion of what, what might be called zombie companies. They're not going to go anywhere. They're mired in debt, you know, um, and they're struggling. But because the because of the PR consequences, given the fact that they, the banks caused the recession, banks shied away from doing what they would normally do in periods of hardship and go, you're not going to survive. We need to think about administration liquidation or selling bits off or moving things around. That will now happen in this recession. So your ability to to grab new opportunities will be much better than they were before. And there will be capital available uh, because that's obviously the other side of it. That last recession, there wasn't the money available to support growth and it was much, much harder. Exactly right. Plenty for entrepreneurs to think about that might have an idea of starting a business. And just um, for yourself um, in helping businesses really enter that uh, that growth phase, uh, Lawrence, um, do you have any sort of personal goals or ambitions um, of your own for your business over the course of the uh, the next 12 months, would you say? Uh, I Not in, not in terms of, of, of massively growing the business. I when, I when I took this over, I deliberately decided that I simply, uh, that I wanted to concentrate on helping companies and not build a big organization under un, underneath it um, so so I'm I have um, and I continue to do to obviously help those businesses that want want to grow and obviously I'll I'll provide you know the experience that I've got and and the techniques that I've developed to help people speed that up and you know avoid the the, the bear traps that are out there that that uh, that uh, if you like uh, catch the unwary or, or, you know, or the, or the, I won't say the naive, but the people who, who lack that experience in understanding what those consequences might be. Um, so, you know, my, 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 um, my goal really for the next 12 months is to continue what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I, I expect to be busier in a year's time than I am now because I think there will be greater demand and it is an underserved market. Um, and what I would say to people is that, you know, if, if 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 you're looking to grow your business, then you need to have a lot of things in place to be successful. Uh, I mean, getting stats on on growing companies is difficult, but um, a few years ago there was a survey done which basically said forty percent of businesses who grew by more than twenty percent in a year either exhibited no growth the following year or actually shrunk. So what that means is that you've almost got a 50% chance of, fall, of of failing or falling back if you don't understand what you need to do. Um, and the reason for that is that sales drives that, it drives growth, and it's pretty important that you get that in place. But you have to think ahead and think, if I sell this stuff, how am I going to deliver it? And make sure that I can deliver it at the rate at which I'm selling. So if I'm, you know, if I grow at 30%, then I have to be able to deliver at 30, you know, that 30% at the time I would normally do. So, you know, what resources do I need to put in place? Do I need to relook at my, my supply lines? Can I get a better deal because I'm buying more? All those things need to be thought through before you press the button. Often what happens is sales grow and then people go, blimey, I need to have a look around and figure out what I got to do. If that, if you're in that position, you're probably too late. 
dangerous uh, ground to uh, to be on, isn't it? And hopefully, like I say, you're going to be really helping entrepreneurs avoid entering that ground and really helping businesses unlock their potential. And, uh, you know, as we start to see sort of how the um, the economic climate starts to uh, really develop and how many new businesses we're seeing spring up and really seize on the opportunities and sort of how you're going to be helping them do that, I'd love the opportunity, Lawrence, to maybe welcome you back onto the show and just see exactly what's changed in the, uh, the time between our discussions. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be more than happy to do do that. Yeah, it'd be great to welcome you back. I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation that we've had on the show today. Found it very, very enlightening from my personal perspective, and I'm sure the listeners do share that sentiment as well. And just a reminder to anybody listening in, if you do happen to uh, to run your own business and you want to bring sort of your own story or perspective to the discussion table on growth or any other topical matter or issue that is relevant to you in business at large, then you can do that via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply and come and sit down with me to direct share your perspective with us on the show. Um, for now, it has been an immense pleasure welcoming Managing High Growth's Lawrence Ainsworth onto today's programme. And thanks again, Lawrence, for taking the time to join us on the programme and uh, do take care. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed yeah, it. I've enjoyed it as well and um, I'm sure we'll catch up on the, on the show in future. Okay, lovely. All right. And for all of our listeners tuning in as well, I've been your host, Scott Challoner, on today's show. And again, I do hope that you have thoroughly enjoyed today's interview. And until next time, when we will be back with a whole new perspective on leadership and current affairs, please do take care all and goodbye.